Welcome to the podcast of River City Community Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.rivercitychicago.com. Lost or saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Amen, amen. Well, good morning, River City. We've had a full service. I'm going to jump right in. We are um, kind of at the culmination point, really, in a series that's important for our community. I'll uh, recap the purpose of it, both for those of you who are jumping in, but also just to kind of continue to re-clarify what we're hoping to do through this series. Uh, We are calling this series Wide Awake, and it kind of came out of Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and um, one of the strong imageries that comes throughout the Bible to describe the transformation of somebody who walks with God is this continual process of moving from blindness to sight. And so there's these awakenings that happen for us as we come awake to who God is and how God is working in the world and how God calls us to participate with God. There's different kinds of things we need to awaken to. In this series, we're particularly focusing on, not that, I don't know what that is. It's a car racing down a street. Um, I'll, I'll be cryptic. See if you can guess what that has to do with Wide Awake. Yeah, nothing. See if you, if you guess that. Sorry. Sorry about that. You're messing with me, Jay. You know I got ADD as it is already. Last thing I need is random images popping up on the side. Who knows how far off track I'll go. Uh, in this series, one of the things we're really trying to focus on, I think this is important throughout our country and our time, specifically something as part of the Ministry of Reconciliation that we believe God has put on this, ch- on this church. We're trying to have a common understanding, a common awakening to this thing called race the social construct of race that we live in within our country. And though there's really a lot to be said about this, and in our initial planning of this, we even thought about going further than just awakening and trying to ask some of these questions. How do we respond? What do we do? What's required of us? One of the convictions we kept coming back to is that um, it's premature to try to figure out what to do as a community until everybody's on the same page of what the problem even is. Said another way, um, if, if, we, if we said, do we all see the same way what this system of race is and how it impacts us in society, do we see that the same? And I think our overwhelming conviction, and I think you'd agree with this too, is that on every level of the time we live in, there is not agreement on what it is and what the impact is. I mean, you can look at it nationally, and I mean, one glance at anybody's Facebook page will remind us that we have very different perspectives and interpretations of what's happening in society through this lens of race. Right? When there's an act of violence, when there's communities in violence, when there's, um, um, when there's a police-involved kind of thing, when it's involving the judicial system, um, those who have a perspective on race that is very alive and active and that there's this narrative of racial difference at work are going to see it through a certain kind of way. Those who are not awake to it, those who are not seeing it that way are going to have a very different perspective. We're seeing in this day and age that the church at large, the big C church, as we often call it, little C church is kind of shorthand of saying an individual church body, big C church, saying the collective church of Jesus Christ. It is very clear, at least in our times and in our society, the church is not seeing the same thing when it comes to race. Right? The election confirmed this again, that white Christians have one perspective of how race, and of course there's differences within each of these groups, but at a macro level, white Christians tend to have one perspective of race in America. Christians of color tend to have a very different perspective, and um, we're not even seeing the same thing. And at a much more personal level, within our body, we see this all the time. 
that there's still a tentativeness for many people in our body because there's not necessarily the sense that we all see what it is the same way, that we all see the impact in the same way, that we all know how to respond together. And so um, at one glance, you might say just simply focusing on naming it and having a common vocabulary for it, maybe that's not a big ambition. I would actually say the opposite. Even after the series, I'm not sure if we'll be there all the way or not, but that's the goal of the series, to be able to, to be awake and alert to and have some kind of a sense of commonality, a common way of looking at this. And so a couple of the really important ideas or threads that get pulled this series, and it's going to culminate in, in fact, if you've got your calendars out, if you'd put this date down, June 7th is a Wednesday. I think that's the first Wednesday in June. Um, That will be kind of the finale of this. Uh, We'll finish the series on the first Sunday of June, which is June 4th, I believe. And then Wednesday night, the 7th, we'll cancel kind of our typical Bible study format, and we're going to invite I hope as many as can come, to um, respond to this series, to kind of respond to this idea of awakening, to dialogue around it. We're going to caucus off with affinity groups, and um, for part of the night, black folks will go with black folks, and Asian folks will go with Asian folks, and white folks will go with white folks, and Latino folks will go with Latino folks, and um, still trying to figure out. It's always one of the many many ways the contract of race gets complicated is when you've got mixed heritage, and you're forced to kind of pick which, which... racial classification you're come to. So we're working on how to best do that. But the event will be um, June 7th, and we'd love for you to be able to come to that. A couple of um, phrases we've used throughout this, but let me say them again, um, that kind of hold the series together. Repeat these with me if you will. They're both common, but first, common memory, and then common theology. Common memory, common theology. Uh, Let me do a a quick piece on common memory. We've come at this many times throughout the series, so if you're just entering in, I hope you'll consider listening to some of the earlier ones to see where we developed this. But let's use, um, let, let me bring up the quote again. Um, Jay, if you'd bring up this quote. We were introduced to this originally by Mark Charles, who's a native theologian, and I think this is so right. This quote is from George Erasmus, who's an Aboriginal advocate and spokesperson for Indigenous folks in Canada and has been very instrumental in some of the truth and reconciliation stuff they've done. But just let the depth of this quote um, if you're River City, you've heard this before, but um, um, for all of us, let's just kind of sit in this for a minute because I think this is so important for a community like ours. Where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where community is to be formed, common memory must be created. All right, I'm just going to leave this up for a minute. I want you to think of this even as I just kind of flesh it out a little bit. Um, I, I, I and I think a lot of us here see that this is one of the consistent problems that happens when folks try to unite across different racial and ethnic backgrounds is there's kind of this energy to move into a new future together, but there's not an agreement on where we have come from and what has shaped the story as it is. And I think that um, George Erasmus is right on that if there's not some kind of a sense of a common memory, of how we got to this moment. If we can't describe the past in somewhat similar terms, you just can't form a community that moves forward together. That in order to have a common future together, a common memory must first be formed. And so this is where there is an important element of understanding. You can go ahead and um, take that back down, Jay, for the moment. This is where we've had to keep coming back through this and say, um, in fact, even this, I, I, I have to be careful. I keep using these phrases that I realize we're all in different places and how we understand it. We have used this phrase, even the word race, the phrase we've used a lot, the social construct of race. That's something I've used a lot through this series. And I, I probably need to slow down because I can very clearly remember when I was in my late 20s and starting to have enlightenments and awakenings around race and um, knowing it meant something deep to God and I had to do something. But people would say something like that. They would say, race is a social construct. 
It's created by human beings, not by God. And I can still remember just the utter confusion that would come to me. You know, maybe for you all, you would know exactly what that is or knew that. But for me, that was very confusing because I thought, I mean, it seems to me racial differences have always been around, right? In fact, uh, you know, as a seminary student, one of the first things I thought of was um, the Great Commission, as it's often called. And you've heard this if you grew up in church. The Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 is when Jesus sends out his disciples to preach and to evangelize and to um, baptize people. And, and he uses the word ethnos, which is where we get ethnics. Jesus says, go to all the nations, all the different ethnic groups, all the different people groups that are out there. And so I would think about that and I'd go, I mean, clearly since the very beginning, there's been ethnic differences. There's been national differences. There's been tribal differences. How is race a social construct? All right, well, like that question right there is one of these important pieces of a common memory because what I had to learn is that ethnicity and race are not the same thing. Right? It actually, I, my instinct was right. Ethnicity has always been around. God, in God's glory, has created people in all different kinds of ways. Right? We're from different parts of the world. We've got different kinds of physical features. Our hair does different things. Our eyes look different. Our skin tone is different. Our body types are different. And that the Bible overwhelmingly points to an acknowledgement of this and a celebration of these kinds of differences. Right? That's not new. That's not a human creation. That's a God creation, ethnic diversity. Race, on the other hand, is a social classification system. Right? Race is a way that we, and it's very instrumental in our country, but it's not alone in the U.S. This is felt around the world. Race is a way of acknowledging those ethnic differences and then assigning meaning to them. It's a way of saying, because you look this way or come from this area, you go in this category. And we've talked a lot in the series, I won't revisit this, about how that's really playing God because we attach value to it. It's in competition with the doctrine of the Imago Dei that we're creating the image of God. But this is where the common memory part becomes so important. This is the heavy, heavy stuff. It's, I acknowledge the heaviness of it. I acknowledge that it can even be re-traumatizing to talk through this each time, but um, and not but. I mean, so, so I recognize the heaviness. But that classification system of race that's a human creation is not a neutral thing. It's We've tried to say it's demonic. We've tried to say... Um, its very origins are violent. The very origins of our understanding of a race are violent, right? Um, I'll do two minutes on this. I've done much on it in the series, and we'll have curriculum around this stuff because we need everybody to get on the same page of this. But when you look at how our country and many places were formed, there was a violence associated with it, and race was part of it from the very beginning, right? In the early days of the United States of America, you had all these different kinds of white European ethnicities, right? And there was skirmishes with them. There's Polish and Irish and German and, um, you know, all different kinds, French, all different kinds of Italians, all different kinds of white ethnic groups represented, right? But as, as, as the, the expansion happened, as the development happened, you can kind of go right down the row of all the different kind of groups that were affected. It required violence to overthrow the indigenous native people. It required violence to take those that we now refer to as Mexicans, but who used to live on this side of the United States and push them out or draw lines, it took violence to establish slavery and to bring you know, hundreds of thousands of Africans over to build the economic system here. It took violence to, to, to take Chinese folks and, and build railroads and other kinds of ways that we've used different Asian people. It took violence. And that's really, that is really what the creation of race is tied to. Right? We had to, I mean, I'm summarizing major historical things I realized, but um, race, the system of race, took all the different kinds of white ethnicities that existed, all the different European ethnicities, and intentionally de-emphasized those. 
you know, all the time in this work that we do this, white people say, am I not allowed to be proud of my Irish heritage? I'm like, of course you can be proud of your Irish heritage. That's not the point of this thing. The point is to realize that when your ancestors came to this country, they were entering into a racial system that was forming that said they could de-emphasize their European ethnicity and blend into this thing called white, and that all people who weren't white in different kinds of ways were being excluded and pushed out of that for the sake of acquiring power, for the sake of acquiring economic gain, right? That's the first time you're hearing it. That wasn't a fair, that, that's not a fair treatment of it. There's much more that can be said. But you see why this is part of common memory, right? If we can't even start to address and attack this thing called race if we don't understand how we got to this thing called race. This social construct called race is not from God. It's not reflective of God. It's not in any way in alignment with God. And at its core, it is evil, there was nothing positive, not one thing positive about the creation of race as we know it. Nothing. It was expressly evil, expressly dark, expressly to create and establish control. That's common memory. That's why we're saying it's really important we understand where we came from to get where we are. And so one of the goals of this is to kind of develop some internal curriculum for River City where when either those who are part of our body want to kind of have time to sit in this or as those kind of enter in that we don't we just can't afford, really, to kind of come back to 101 all the time in here. We've got to kind of point people to a way and say, you know, when we're talking about common memory, common theology, here's a curriculum we've developed from within our church. And that's part of the goal of the series, part of the goal of that event on the 7th. All right, let me, let, let's spend the rest of the time on the common theology one because um, we are a church. And though there's expressions of this and people doing lots of important things outside of the church, there is a very unique way that those who are people of faith come at this because... At the end of the day, to be a Christian means we are a Christ one. That's what Christian literally translates to. It's to be a Christ one. To become a Christian is to convert to Jesus Christ, to say that I am in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I'm united to God through Jesus Christ. I confess of my sins. I am saved, and I join into his work. I'm baptized into his work and join his work. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so we are, we are trying to develop a theology around this, too, that says, you know, there's going to be some Christians who try to say race is some kind of a social thing that's outside of the spiritual realm. We're saying, no, this is a profoundly spiritual issue, a profoundly spiritual issue that has all kinds of social implications, economically, educationally, health-wise, but it's at its core a spiritual issue. So we're not trying to overly segment spiritual and social as much as saying this is the theology part. This is understanding that it's a direct assault to the heart of God. It's a direct reflection of a larger battle between good and evil. And that's, that's, that's the really one big idea that's not an introduction to this series, but I want to I strongly reaffirm again um, this week. That's the, my only kind of last hope for today's, is to ground this. When we, start, when we try together as a body, say, let's be awake to this. When we try to ask the question, are we all seeing the same thing? From a theological perspective, um, I, I believe it's really important that one of the things that we clearly see is that race is ultimately a function of a larger battle between good and evil. Right, this goes all the way back to the Genesis series we did this year, but that one of the things we become awakened to is that when, we're, when God brings us into this world, um, we've got our own stuff we're trying to figure out, but it happens against a backdrop of good versus evil of light versus dark, of Jesus Christ versus Satan, that that's part of what is happening in this world and that the very identity of those two beings, of Jesus and of Satan, play a profound effect in how we understand the system of race. So let's, det- let's not detour, but let's, let's, go into the- let's go into our passage, a couple passages I want to look at, and then we'll tie this back again to how I think this equips us 
um, to see, first of all, the system of race and then to ultimately respond to it. So um, let's go ahead and read it, stand together for this reading. Jay, I'm going to jump right to the John 8 passage, if that's all right. This is John 8, verses 42 through 44. This is part of a larger um, conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. This is also the same passage. You, you get this really clear, this clear contrast. Jesus, in, in chapter 8, a couple verses sooner, 838 says, whom the, spirits, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So he's talking about how he becomes freedom. But here, this is one of the clearest descriptions Jesus gives of who Satan is or who the devil is. And I want us to really just reflect. It's a short passage, but it's just got heavy, heavy stuff considering who the devil is. John eight forty two. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. And here's an important question to consider. He says, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father, the devil's desires. And here's just the straight talk from Jesus on who the devil is. Some of us have trouble believing in that reality. It was, it was core to who Jesus was to talk about this. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. And hear this, this is just where it gets so important. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and is the father of lies. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Jay, you can just leave that up for a second. Maybe go back just one screen just so we can kind of like let that, let it sit in again. Um, especially when he's talking about who the devil is. Jesus is describing the essence of who the devil is. He says there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. And flip it one more time, if you will. He speaks his language, native language. Consider this. When Jesus talks about the devil, he says he's a liar, that he's got a native language, which is lies. And even more than that, he is the father of all lies. Which means anytime we come up against a lie, big or small, we are touching something that has something deeply spiritual happening to it. That the one who whips up lies, who tries to get people to live in lies, to, get, to live in deceit, is the devil. That that is not only a tactic of the devil, it's the primary tactic of the devil. Um, said another way, Shereen made an interesting observation at Staff Meeting Friday. She said, you know, in the East, we tend to be so comfortable with the reality of spiritual warfare and the ways it kind of plays out. So I've noticed in the West, people are very, it's a confusing idea to talk about spiritual warfare. I think that's probably true. And she said, and I think this is right, she said, she said, this is the easiest way to spot spiritual warfare. We don't need to go on the hunt looking for possessions or demonic attacks or something. Anytime we see lies happening, especially lies that are embedded into society, when we see the presence of a lie and people buying into that lie, we are witnessing firsthand spiritual warfare. Because that's who the devil is. The devil is looking for any way to express lies. Right? We can think, we, we did, um, again, referring to stuff, if you're just joining us, we did a series on Genesis, but we really looked at this. In the garden, we see the first attack, the first spiritual warfare attack in the Garden of Eden. And what did this first attack from the evil one towards God's people look like? It came in the form of a lie. The serpent comes and says, did God really say you can't eat of this tree? Is God really as good as God says God is, right? There was no new thing. There wasn't an alternative vision. It was simply a lie. It was a distortion. It was trying to blind the eyes of Adam and Eve, which which, um, he successfully did. Let's just kind of stay in that same track. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 4, 
chapter, um, ch- chapter 4, verse 4. This is the Apostle Paul who frequently reflects on the reality of spiritual warfare and the lies particularly that's in this. And this is sobering kind of stuff from a theological standpoint. It is sobering that this is how the Bible describes it. Um, but the Bible just does not shy away from the fact, even post-Jesus, that the devil and the legions with the devil are at work in this world and that there's a lying that they're trying to express. Second Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age, who is the devil, that's who Paul's talking about. The God of this age has blinded. See that? We're talking about awake. We're talking about seeing, Right. Um, that's not just read a book uh, the, when we're talking about awakening and seeing. We'll, we'll recognize there's a spiritual dimension to this, that there's an active campaign by the evil one to keep people, to keep their minds blinded. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All right, so let's just sit there for a minute. Let's reflect, though it's heavy, let's reflect on this. It's, again, this just clear contrast. The Bible never tries to make it complicated what's happening. The Bible makes it really clear that this is what God's purpose is, that we would see the light of the gospel. Okay? That's what God's doing in our lives. God wants to see the light of the gospel, the good news of God's love, of God's forgiveness, of God's invitation into the family of God, that all we must do is say yes to Jesus. That's always what God is trying to do to help us see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, what he did for us, how he invites us into the family of God, how we can be joined into him through faith, how as disciples we participate in his work. And there's that phrase. We've talked about the Imago Dei all series, all series long. That's the English translation of the Latin Imago Dei, the image of God, right? That the image of God, the Imago Dei, that this is what God wants us to see first in ourselves through salvation, that this full image is brought back to life through what Jesus Christ has done, but then to see that image of God in every human being. Let's remember that this is God's prized possession, the Imago Dei, that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save those who are disconnected from their image to be fully reconciled. This is always what God is trying to do. But the God of this age, which is one of the phrases the Apostle Paul uses to recognize not the final authority the devil has. We're never meant to live in fear of this. We're never meant to live like, oh my gosh, we can't win. Jesus is the ultimate victory. There's no question. But there's an acknowledgement that there's a God of this age that until Jesus Christ makes, things all, makes all things right, there's a God of this age and that the primary purpose of this God, of this age, the devil, the one who is a liar, diabolos means liar, the purpose is to blind the minds of people. All right, so consider that, that You may be thinking about it. You may not be thinking about it. You may be aware of it. You may not be aware of it. But at a larger level, all the time, is this battle that's happening. A God who wants us to see the full glory of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. A devil who wants to obscure, to distort, to lie, to hide us from it in any kind of a way. And that's that's why this system of race is such a profoundly spiritual issue. Because at its deepest level... There is a battle between a truth and a lie. And so at a truth level, God is trying to unearth and help us all to see that every human being is created in the Imago Dei. Every human being has infinite value and worth and measured value because of who they are in God. And then there's this lie that undergirds the system of race, the social construct of race. We've, we've used Brian Stevenson's language, the narrative of racial difference the lie that undergirds this, not that we recognize racial difference or ethnic difference. That's a wonderful thing to do, and that will happen in heaven. We will celebrate that. But when we assign human value, 
to those racial differences. Everybody gets screwed up by that system. Everybody gets distorted by that. Everybody is cloaked in this lie that's all around us. And until we can see it with clarity in the way it impacts us, the way it impacts our neighbors, the way it impacts the system and structure around us, until we see it with clarity, we are not in any kind of position to try to become a community around that or to fight against that. And so I want to show a heavy clip. It's a short clip. It's from CNN, actually. Um, but Anderson Cooper um, did a little segment about, and some of you have probably already seen this because it's gone around the internet a lot, but Anderson Cooper just did a little segment. He doesn't use the language of narrative racial difference, but it's essentially what he's showing in this. Um, he's talking about the way the narrative of racial difference not only affects how dominant culture people see kind of this spectrum of light and dark as having value to it, but how it even affects the minds of everybody, including um, the first little girl that he interviews. So we're going to watch this twice just to kind of listen. It's 42 seconds long. It's very short. Um, and just to kind of cue you, let, let, I want you to look for something different each time. The first time we watch this, I want you to just look for the real ways in everyday life that this narrative of racial difference plays out. Again, the narrative of racial difference is the lie that says we not just see racial difference, but we, we attach value to them. We attach meaning to them. We say somebody's human value is established based on where they fall in this racial hierarchy. So in the first pass, I want you to look for the narrative of racial difference. And then the second time, I just want to let us just sit in the reality of how demonic something this this feels. So let's watch this 42-second clip from Anderson Cooper. Our second major finding, even black children as a whole have some bias toward whiteness, but far less than white children. She'll be the smart child. And why is she the smart child? Because she is white. Okay. Show me the dumb child. And why is she the dumb child? Because she plays. Well, show me the ugly child. And why is she the ugly child? Because she plays. Show me the good-looking child. And why is she the good-looking child? It breaks tears in my eyes each time I watch it. Let's watch it one more time. And when you watch this, tell me that this is not demonic, that it's not demonic, that there's something in this beautiful little girl's mind that tells her who the smart one is and who the dumb one is and who the beautiful one is and who the not, not beautiful one is because of this lie that's out there. Let's watch this one more time and just let the heaviness of this sink in. Our second major finding, even black children as a whole have some bias toward whiteness, but far less than white children. She'll be the smart child. And why is she the smart child? Because she is white. Okay. Show me the dumb child. And why is she the dumb child? Because she plays. Well, show me the ugly child. And why is she the ugly child? Because she plays. Show me the good-looking child. And why is she the good-looking child? That's what a lie looks like. That is what spiritual warfare looks like. 
that is what Jesus is talking about when he says the devil is the father of lies. That's his native tongue. That is sinful, it's evil, it's dark, and it is profoundly present in our everyday lives. We're watching that girl respond to it, but there's not one person in this room that's exempt from that lie. There's not one person in this room has grown up in, in spaces where you haven't heard that lie in a thousand different ways. We live in an atmosphere that is under constant attack of the Imago Dei, where it comes from people who are expressly trying to spread that lie. It comes from people who are accidentally conspiring with that lie. It comes from people who spend every dying breath saying the lie doesn't exist while it keeps moving forward. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying when he says there is a God of this age who is trying to blind the minds from seeing stuff like this. And it's why our hope in this series is to be able to say, we all see this, that that's not just out there that that happens, that as we try to become a community that is united together on Jesus Christ, that lies in here too. It must be named, it must be confronted, it must be rooted out, because that's what Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ is freedom. Jesus Christ is truth. Jesus Christ is restorer of the Imago Dei. Jesus Christ is saver, savior. Jesus Christ is liberator. Jesus Christ breaks free the chains of the oppressed. And we're all oppressed in our own way by this one. There's not an oppressed group and not an oppressed group. When it comes to the bondage of this lie, we are all caught up in this lie. And therefore, freedom for any of us is freedom for all of us. We must get free of this lie. The Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, Jesus says, starts by convicting of untruth, by bringing untruth to light, by bringing sin to the light. We must consistently pray that God will bring this to light in our society, in that eventually we get to the point where we're feeling equipped and capable of fighting against it, and that's important too. We'll get there. I mean, there's not a person in this room that's not uniquely equipped to fight against this in your own way, right? Whether you're a student or a parent at home, you are equipped to combat that in a unique way. You've got a voice to speak into that in a unique way. Whatever ethnic combination that you are, you've experienced that lie in certain kinds of ways that equip you to be able to name that lie. There's not anybody in here that's not positioned to name that lie and to fight back against it in the power of Jesus Christ. Not one person of us is not equipped for it, but we have got to see it together. We've got to see the way that lie has been formed for common memory. We've got to see that the way that that lie continues to play out in society. We need to see the ways in which our own sense of identity has been distorted and warped by this lie. We've got to see how this is so important to Jesus Christ to confront and root out and dismantle this lie, to name it and to call people to freedom. And that's why I believe those who Jesus Christ is calling to himself have such a unique role in this because Jesus says, I am truth. I am truth. He calls us into the truth of who he is and equips us to be able to speak truth to that lie. I keep deciding, I keep wrestling here, how we're, we're, we're done with kind of thinking about this. It feels heavy in here and appropriately so. Um, I don't think I'm going to do the altar call this week, but I think I'm going to explain this, and I think we will do it in the last week of this series. Um, a lot of you grew up in church environments that are familiar with altar calls, and some of you didn't either way. Um, a lot of people don't know the actual origination of where altar calls came from. Um, altar calls came during the Great Awakening. Charles Finney is the one who brought them to prominence. And there's a traditional part of altar calls that was part of it, that um, 
after delivering a sermon from Scripture, Charles Finney wanted to give every person who had not yet said yes to Jesus a chance to come to salvation. He would say, if you're ready to repent of your sins, and if you're ready to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want you to come up to this altar, and people would come. But he would never allow it be a one-part thing. He would also say, and if you say yes to Jesus, that means you're saying yes to becoming a disciple of Jesus. And that means that you are going to follow him in this day and age. And so he also insisted if you were going to come to the altar call, you would sign up to fight against the system of slavery. And he actually, if you do the research on this, he got so criticized for it because a lot of people didn't like that he tied salvation, which is by faith alone, to the necessity of a response. But he was doggedly determined about it that if you were going to say yes to salvation, you wouldn't have to sign up for the anti-slavery to be saved. But if you were going to say yes to being saved, why not in that same moment say yes to Jesus Christ who was at work in that day and to sign up against the system of evil and lies and horrific expression of the kingdom of the God of this world. And so people would come up and say yes to salvation to Jesus Christ, and then they would say yes to fighting against that system back then. And I think when we end this series, that's what I want to do. I want to have an altar call where we invite people to say yes the first time or yes to however many times they have to the person of Jesus, but then saying, yes, God, I want to be awake. I want to be awake to how the God of this world is expanding this lie and using this lie. And you, once you start to become awake, you start to see it, it, it takes so many different forms. It reincarnates. When you kind of get it in one place, it pops up somewhere else. But once you've seen that lie, you can't ever go back again. You can't ever go back again. You can't ever go into situations and settings anymore where people don't call out that lie because you've become too awake to it. You become too awake to the way the devil is at work, and you just can't tolerate religion anymore that doesn't address that. And it's not even about judging. It's about saying, once the Christ has awakened me and opened my eyes, I can't go back to a way where I just play church anymore, right? The devil's work is too real, too tangible in everyday kind of life. And so I think because of the heaviness in here today, I don't, we're not going to do the altar call today because there is a sense of really responding. So I want us to sit in this, and we've got two more weeks in this series, and we'll just kind of keep coming back at this. And I hope that we can all end by saying, yes, I see it. I see you, Jesus. I'm signing up with you to be part of your kingdom. So today, I'm just going to let Aaron and the team kind of finish where they finish, and uh, we'll, we'll respond here a little bit in worship, and then um, we'll do our benediction.
us away, make us away, make us away, make us away. So make us away, make us away, make us away. We want to know you better. We want to know you better. Come on, can you sing it out in this room? Sing it. Your presence is all around us. And we're not separated from you.